The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Welcome to our pulpit this evening, the Reverend William Bud Davies, Pastor Emeritus of Bellevue Presbyterian Church in Gap. Not a stranger here, a member of our church, and we're delighted to have Bud open God's Word for us this evening. First of all, it is my great joy to be here this evening. When I uh, gave the affirmative that I would uh, preach tonight, I had no idea that I'd be so blessed with the choir here as well. Quarry, you have, have to understand that as a, as a Welshman, both of my grandfathers were born in Wales. My one grandmother was born in Wales. We lived in, I lived in Wales for a couple of years, and I can't sing. I can't sing. What a, one of the most confusing things in my mind is why that happens. But I do know something, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I've learned over the years, it's that which you cannot do for yourself that you are the most thankful for. And I am literally the most thankful for music in all forms of expression, especially sacred music. And I appreciate you being here this evening and sharing with us such beautiful sacred music. So thank you very much. I want to ask you to turn with me now to uh, Luke's Gospel, to a familiar parable, or at least the uh, last portion of a familiar parable. As we turn now to Luke 15, verses 25 through 32. Let us hear God's word. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew nearby to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what things were meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, for many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured his property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him, and you said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is mine. All that I, all that I have is mine is yours. And the fitting, and it is fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive, and he is lost, and he is found. Please pray with me. Lord God, as we gather together this night, we thank you that we can gather in the name of Jesus Christ, 
For there is no other name upon heaven and earth that we dare come into your presence. Now I ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us, lead the one that dares to speak for you, but lead all that are gathered here this night, that we might hear your word and what is not of you. If anything that is said is not of your will or not of your way or not of your truth, with a breath, you would blow it away. For we are here this evening to encounter again the one and only living true God. To that end I pray, and to that end I preach. Amen. I've just read the last stanza, if you would, or the last eight verses of the parable we know as the prodigal son. Primarily, these verses deal with a father, an elder brother, and an empty seat. They deal with a father who dearly loved both of his sons. They deal with an elderly brother who was bitter and angry at both his father and his younger son. And it deals with an empty seat that marked a spot and a reason and a rationale for why some did not come back to the Father, why some chose to live a life of rebellion, of hatred towards God and their own family. There are um, some that might be wondering why I chose not to uh, read the whole parable. And um, it was purely just a matter of the fact that I was going to be focusing on verses 25 and following. And yet, let's be real, it was also because I know this is a very biblically literate church. You know the parable of the prodigal. You have been taught over the years so, so well from this pulpit. And you are being taught so, so well from this pulpit. We also know in this church that there are many opportunities in Sunday school, Bible studies, and Bible studies and Bible studies to encounter the living Word of God with wonderful care and wonderful instruction. And finally, this was a Sunday evening worship service. And I figured above all, you would know the first part of the prodigal son. There are some over the years that have said that this, these verses are the forgotten section of the prodigal. I would, I would beg to differ. I don't know how many sermons I've heard throughout my lifetime that the preacher has started with that claim. They said, we're going to turn now to the end of the prodigal son because these are the verses that people fail to preach. I really think over the years, I've heard more sermons on these last eight verses than I have on the first 12 verses. So that's not my reason for turning here this evening. Now, what I am guilty of and what I think a lot of people are guilty of, not guilty of, but but, uh, do, 
is I would use the beginning of the prodigal as illustration of talking about the father that was always waiting for his son to come home. And then that day in the far distance, he saw him and he ran to him and he kissed him and he threw his coat around him and he said, come bring the ring, kill the fatted calf, for this my son was lost, is alive, is dead, and will live again. Just brief comment on, on parables. Parables are one of those things that we've got to be somewhat careful with, and uh, uh, for they can be tricky. Most parables parables were told for one reason, to make one single point. Uh, very few are to be stretched out. They are far more, I think, practical than doctrinal. Uh, we are not to draw necessarily our doctrine from the parables, but to listen to that one message that is being told. There are exceptions, and probably the greatest exception is the parable of the Good Samaritan, where some have gone into great detail about this man, Adam, on his way to Jerusalem, to uh, glory, coming from the city of evil, coming from uh, where the spirits dwell. And then it talks about Jesus bringing the man who is this good Samaritan to the house, to the home, and that the promise that he would come back again. Anyway, all that to say, we just have to be careful about the parables. I want us then now to look at the uh, parable of the prodigal son. I want us to look now at the elder brother. In verse 29, we read there after he had arrived and asked what was going on, asking uh, what all this noise and dancing was all about. We read there in verse 29 that he was performance-driven. He was performance driver. Um, we th- three things very quickly here. He was marking time. All these years, he says to his father, I have been with you. All these years I've been marking the time. I've been marking as, as, as spring turns to a winter and winter turns to, a, to spring and fall and summer. And I've, I've been marking time. You know what it is to mark time. It's just putting in the hours that you need to put in. On Thursday of this past week, Prince Charles turned 71 years old, Prince Charles of England. And uh, for 68 years, he has been heir apparent to the English throne. He knows what it means to mark time. He also tracks behavior. He said, I have been with you. I've never disobeyed you. This would be similar, I think, to the uh, parable of the uh, uh, rich young ruler who said, you know, what, when he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you must keep the commandments. And he says, these I have done since I was a boy. And so he was marking his behavior as well. He also felt entitled. There's a sense we do not have to read very long. Here I've been with you all these years, and yet not once did you uh, kill the fatted calf. 
not once did you do this for me. He felt very much entitled. Tom Brokaw has just written his second book um, about Richard Nixon. And uh, believe it or not, it's been 21 years since he wrote his first book on the Americans' Greatest Generation. And it was there in that book that he talked about the generation of his father and of his grandfather that struggled through the Depression, that made their way off to World War II, who came home and married and built homes and had jobs, but never was there a sense of entitlement. Never was there a sense of somebody owes me this. I, I lived my whole life with a man that never felt entitled because of his service, who flew in both the Second World War, Korea, and in Vietnam. It wasn't until one Christmas vacation, my mother said to us, Dad said we might want to go over the base this afternoon because he's getting some kind of an award or something. We went over the base and he was given award of the Distinguished Flying Cross for a story we never heard from his lips, and I never did. The only thing I know about it, what was on the paper that was given with the Distinguished Flying Cross, and some interesting material my brother has dug up in recent years. This man, the elder brother, felt entitled. See, Thanksgiving cannot flow from a heart that is driven in such a way that feels entitled, that it's just marking time, that feels he's perfect in everything he does. Thanksgiving cannot flow from that heart. The other thing that I would have you note from the text concerning this man is that a He was relationally distant. I love in verse 30 when he says this, but when this son of yours came, whom you devoured devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. See, he said what? This son of yours. Is there a parent here this evening that has not used a similar phrase. Not my son, but this son of yours. See, he was broken from his family. This son of yours, he wasn't, this is what my brother has done. In Luke 17, we read of the 10 lepers that Jesus healed, and only one came back to him. I think the only one that came back to him is the one that felt what connected to Jesus, somehow had that that connection, had a sense of oneness, had a sense of brotherhood. He came back to heal Jesus. The others felt no love for their brother or no love for the one who had turned his back over and over again on his family. Finally, this elder son was possession blind. He said, you know, you've never done this for me. 
And what does the Father says? You have been with me all this time, and everything you have is mine. Remember back in 2 Samuel, the 12th verse, after David had met up with Bathsheba, and he needed to be rebuked, and God had picked Nathan to rebuke David. And he tells him the story about this man that was rich and had all kinds of herds and cattle and everything else, and this poor man that only had one little sheep that actually was, was like their family pet, and that a visitor came to town, and, instead, and this rich man, instead, instead of taking one of his, uh, his own, of which he had many, he took this one little sheep and slaughtered it and fed the family that had come to visit. And there in verse 7, after David had sworn, once he finds out who this man is, he would, uh, he would deal with it very severely. In verse 7 of Second Samuel, we read, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over all of Israel, and I deliver you over into the hands of Saul. And I give you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. See, like David, this elder son felt he wasn't getting the fair end of the deal. And all David is saying, all David is being told here is if you had just asked that you needed more, I would have given you more. I think we've got to be careful here, my friends, because this is not talking about the posterity gospel. This is not talking about health and wealth theology at all. In fact, uh, in in the uh, June edition of Table Talk, the Ligonier magazine, devotional magazine, uh, how many of you did you pick up the uh, interview with uh, Costia, um, the nephew of uh, Benny Hahn, Kasi Hahn? Wonderful article, wonderful interview, because he had grown up in the in, in the wealth of the uh, um, whole uh, posterity gospel, and there uh, he pointed four things that were wrong with it. He said, first of all, it's an assault to the uh, sovereignty of God because somehow it it makes God a puppet on the string that if we do the right things, we play the right march, we pray the right prayer, God's going to come over to our side. Then he said it's also an assault on uh, on, on the atonement of Christ because Christ came into the world not to save us, not to get us more stuff. He said it's also denies a reality in the scripture for a theology of pain and suffering which the scripture has. And finally he says, yes, money in itself is not evil, but all money must be used with the eternity of God in mind and at heart. This was the elder son that somehow he felt he had gotten the raw end of the deal, that his father, that his God, 
had owned him so much more. The empty chair. You know, as I thought of that, I realized the father in the parable had lived with an empty chair for a long time, hadn't he? It wasn't just this day that he'd thrown the party for his son because his son had come home, the lost who had been saved, the lost had been found. No, he had had an empty chair for many, many years as his son had gone off and squandered his wealth and wild living. And yet the difference was vast. The one was bitter. The one was angry. The one would never think of, of, of loving his father in such a way. While the other, who had taken his wealth and lived in wild living, came to his senses and decided he would go home. And he asked forgiveness of his father. And as he turned, the father saw him and he ran to him. And he held him, hugged him and kissed him and threw this great feast. My friends, the empty chair... I want to just shift gears here just for a moment because a week on Thursday is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving this year is as late as it can possibly be. It's the fourth Thursday of the month and uh, that's where it falls this year. And there will be those of you, I'm sure, that will have empty seats at your table this year. Empty seats because of the loss of a loved one. Empty seats because someone has moved halfway around the world, halfway across the country. Empty seats, some even maybe because of strife in the family. But it is the desire of God to meet you at that empty seat, not to bring a loved one back to that spot, but to remind you that God has taken those who have died in Christ to a far better place, a far better seat, a far better dwelling. It is to remind you that those who have left maybe for halfway around the country, halfway around the world, that in faith if they belong to Christ, God goes with them, will watch over them and protect them. It is a reminder of families that are in strife that there is hope, a God that can come and love and heal and forgive and make right. But above all, we, I am most thankful for that which I cannot do myself. It's funny, we share a common need at this point, don't we? We are most thankful for him who came to die for us, for the Savior of the world, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God, that we might be holy, that we might wear the righteous robes of our Lord Jesus Christ, a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness unlike any other righteousness that we can have, because that which we need the most, we cannot do for ourselves. And ultimately, at the end of the day, my friend, that is the thing for which we are the most grateful, the most thankful, for which we give to God the greatest glory. Let's pray together.
Father God, we bow before you this evening and we thank you for this night. We thank you that we can gather together in your name. We thank you for the gift of music. We thank you that you have given those individuals the ability to, uh, to, be, to be musicians and to put it all together. And most of all, I thank you that here in the Church of Jesus Christ and these choirs, they're put together for one primary reason, and that is to praise your holy name, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, to praise your name and to send your message forth that you are the God that came because you loved us to redeem us, to save us. You have saved us from the guttermost to the uttermost. And we are eternally thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.